All right. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and jump in for tonight. Uh, about a month ago, we talked uh, the first uh, one of these on the issue of the gospel at work or the gospel and work. And I think uh, just uh, we mentioned this last time, but the, Greg Gilbert and a guy named Sebastian Traeger wrote a book called The Gospel at Work, which we're borrowing the title from, uh, How Working for King Jesus Gives Purpose and Meaning to Our Jobs. It's a good short book on, the, on this topic if you want to uh, know a little bit more about this issue. And uh, before we jump in, we need to pray. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. And Greg, could you open us in prayer? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together as a church family to enjoy some good food for which we are very thankful. Uh, Lord, uh, have good fellowship. Um, and Lord, have this opportunity to study your word. Uh, especially uh, in relation to our vocation and our jobs and how your word and the gospel uh, <coughs> apply to this. So, Lord, be with us. Give us wisdom. Uh, help us understand what all that your word says as best we can in the time we have. And, uh, Lord, we just commit our hearts and minds to you and pray that because of tonight we'd be better able to follow Christ in our jobs and to reflect him in all that we say and do to those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Genesis 39. You know, one, of the, one of the things I've been wanting to emphasize with these two nights where we talk about work, one thing that I think doesn't get a lot of uh, spotlight time in, in churches, which I think is often neglected, is talking about the goodness of the work itself. Very, now, listen, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I absolutely believe that the weightiest aspect of what we're often able to do through our work, not always as much as we would like, but certainly evangelism and being able to present the gospel to other people is going to be one of the weightiest aspects of what we are privileged to do through our work and the relationships that we have. But I, I sometimes have this fear that we, we almost think that the, the work is entirely a means to an end. The, the work itself doesn't really have that much value. It's just about maybe making money to pay the bills or having an opportunity to share the gospel. Well, we are all for both of those things, uh, but wanting to put a little bit of the spotlight on the value and dignity of the actual work that we are doing at our job, you know, state, to state the obvious, provided our job is not sinful, right? Provided our job is, there are sinful jobs. Provided our job is not actually sinful, then if our heart attitude is right, the actual work we are doing at our job is meant to be an act of service and love to the people that we are working for, the people that we are serving. That will be our boss in one sense. That's true. We should serve as if, as if serving the Lord Christ, but also the, the individuals that we are interacting with, that we are serving with our work, those people. Uh, we should see that as an act of love and service to them as we do our work. And last time we mentioned that you know, there's different numbers, but about, if you work full-time for your life, for your adult life, 80,000 hours of your life are spent at work. Uh, that's, that's a whole lot of your life. 80,000 uh, hours of your life at work. And the question is, does God care about that enormous portion of our life? Well, of course God does. And so we want to have a biblical perspective on, on work. A any opening thoughts, Greg, before we jump into Joseph here? Um, I mean, I'm probably going to rehash some of what was said last time. Um, but, you know, work is not inherently sinful. It's not inherently evil. It's, um, we talked about, you guys talked about this last time. It is, it's difficult and we dread it because of sin and how the earth has been cursed, the world 
is under a curse. And so, you know, work was designed to be an enjoyable, productive, fruitful um, endeavor. And it's because of sin that, you know, God tells Adam, you know, by the sweat of your brow, will, you know, you get what, you know, will you get stuff from the earth? And even then it's not going to easily yield its fruit to you. You know, there's going to be thorns and thistles. And so, you know, we, we have to, and, and it, it's hard to do, we have to reorient how we think about work because we have to think of it in terms of what God made it, how God designed it, um, not in terms of our experience of it because of sin. Um, I mean, it, it's a blessing if we enjoy what we do for a living, but I mean, there's just this reluctance to to want to get out and do stuff that I think we, we fight against. And where does that come from? That comes become because of the curse. Um, but God didn't design work to be a bad thing. He made it to be a good thing. He made us to be workers. Um, and so all that we're looking at flows out of the fact that work is something that inherently honors God because He gave mankind a task to you know fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, Meaning in everything that we do, as you said, we're doing for Him, but the task itself honors Him. Because if we're in His world, then when we're working to honor Him and serve others, what we're doing isn't incidental. It's actually very important. Uh, that's helpful. So if, if you remember the story of Joseph, I'm not going to rehash the story. You, you, many of us are familiar with that story. But you remember Joseph started off working for his dad really as a shepherd, right? And I think there was a level perhaps of enjoyment in that. I don't know exactly what all was going on there, but he certainly did a, a good job. Now, after his brothers, you know, betray him, they sell him into slavery for pieces of silver, he ends up working for Potiphar. Now, I'll just stop for a second. This is not the job that Joseph wanted. This wasn't like Joseph had the dream job. One day, I want to work as a slave for a guy named Potiphar in Egypt. That would be awesome. Joseph was not thinking that way. So if you've ever had moments, or maybe you're in this place where you're going, I, I really do have a job I would love to do. It's out there, I think, on the horizon. I don't know if I'll ever even get to do that for a living. But right now, I'm just not doing what I want to be doing. Joseph is the guy we need to talk about for a minute, because Joseph is that guy too. He, he, for what, he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. He was 30, we're told that in Genesis, his ages. He was 17 when he was sold into slavery, 30 when he was exalted to become almost the you know, prime minister of Egypt, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call that, the vice president, uh, it, when he was exalted. So there was, a, there was a window there of about a 13-year period where Joseph was not doing what Joseph wanted to be doing at all for that extremely long period of time. I just want to get a couple glimpses of his attitude when he, when he knows something. And before I read this, let me start at the end of the story. It's uh, Mr. Uh, Jerry Edgar's called it the, uh, I was called Mr. Edgar at school. So here at church, it doesn't make a lot of sense when I start saying Mr. Edgar. <laughs> the students are not used to me calling him Jerry. I don't know. Where am I? I need to call him the right name. What Jerry often says is that Rome, uh, Romans 8.28 has its counterpart in Genesis 50.20. And you don't, you don't have to turn there right now. If you want to, you can. But in that verse, it says, Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about the saving of many lives. What Joseph is talking about there is not simply one small act. He's talking about the whole 13 years. And he's saying, listen, every single bit of my suffering, every false accusation, like from Potiphar's wife of the attempted right there. And he says, that's not true. I didn't do that. He gets thrown in jail for a crime he didn't commit. All of the rungs on this ladder, everything that happens, he says, God's sovereign plan had a purpose in all of it. And God meant it 
for good, to bring about the saving of many lives. So here's what I would say just at the front of this time. If you're working a job that you don't particularly enjoy right now, it's not a job that you love to do. We can still trust, not that you should never leave that job or look for a better job, there's nothing wrong with that, but you, sh you should trust that God has you where you are right now on purpose, right? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God right now, God has a purpose for the job that you have at this very moment, and that's something that we need to believe. So God's sovereignty over the direction of our life is an important part. So let's read here. Can you, Greg, can you read the first uh, six verses of Genesis 39? Yeah. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt... And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed, <coughs> excuse me, blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So I like, hold on, do we want to read the next part? I, I want to get to that just a second. Okay, right, I, I do we'll want to get to that. So here you see, how does Joseph work? He works with integrity. He does what he says he will do. What he's asked to do, he does well. I'm sure he did it cheerfully. He did it with a good attitude, trusting God's sovereignty in the midst of this very un, unpleasant circumstance. He works really hard with integrity. He does what he's supposed to do as he's supposed to do it. And guess what? The, the Lord's hand of blessing is on him. This is not some kind of prosperity gospel, but it is true that sometimes God will circumstantially bless people who are working hard. It's not a promise or a guarantee, but he does work very hard. And it gets to the point where Potiphar trusts him with all in his household. Pot Potiphar says, I can trust this to, this to this man, Joseph. So you want to pick up here with the next uh, part? Yeah, the Greg? next part of verse, how far do you want me to go? Go, uh, let's go down through verse, uh, oh man. Verse, Verse 10. 10, yeah. All right, yeah. All right, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, if you're wondering about Joseph's worldview, I, I, I can't get over this verse. <clears throat> Read it one more time. Look at verse 9. He is not greater in his house than I am, Potiphar, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. And you might expect it to say, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? That's almost what you're expecting because he's talking about Potiphar. But he says, and sin against God. So Joseph sees his integrity at work as being intimately connected to his relationship with God. So he, he will act in a way that is God-honoring, even though, look, none of his family are watching Joseph right now. His, his parents and grandparents have no idea what's going on. They, his father thinks he's gone. He's dead at this point because of his brothers. He doesn't have his youth pastor walking down the street watching him. He has nobody checking in on him. He could get away with whatever he wants to right now. He could easily get away with doing this thing right here. But what? 
His God-consciousness, his God-centeredness will not let him do that. And so, as he works, he is working in a way that is honoring to God, and it's going to be uh, respectful to Potiphar uh, no matter what comes around him. Well, and I want to say, too, the importance of integrity in our work. Um, this is it's an interesting contrast to me. The language is very similar. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Judges chapter 16, we have a contrast with another, another man of God. Um, who is being tempted to do wrong, and it's Samson. And the, the language of this is humorous, uh, what it says. You know, Delilah is someone he shouldn't even be with, um, and she's trying to get him to give up the secret of his strength. And so at first, he's kind of teasing her, mocking her. But then in verse 15, she said to him, "'How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me?' You've mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And now listen to this. When she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. She wore him down, basically what it's saying. Um, And so he told her all his heart, and eventually he gives in to the thing that he should not have given in to. Um, And just contrast that with Joseph Joseph, I think, held his integrity because he realized who he was ultimately serving. He was serving God. And like, I love the fact that, like you said, it doesn't say, he doesn't say to her, how could I sin against my master, your, your husband? He says, how could I sin against God? Samson had no, um, no focus on the Lord. He was only interested in himself, in his own pleasure, um, <clears throat> and God was really not on his horizon. I mean, he knew God gave him his strength, he had that awareness, but he was not intent on living a life that was pleasing to the Lord. Um, and so eventually he gave in to Delilah, whereas Joseph continually said no. And he kept his integrity because he kept that focus on the Lord. So just one more thing in Genesis 39. So he's been falsely accused and he's about to be sent to jail. Uh, verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So Joseph is falsely accused of a crime, sent to jail, and what does he do in jail? He's working hard as to the Lord. And the, 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 the prison guard looks at him and says, okay, I'm actually going to entrust you because I, I can see that you're the real deal. I, you have, you're a man of integrity. He puts him in authority in the prison. And so Joseph could be scrubbing toilets in the prison. He could be working for Potiphar. He could be shepherd for his dad. Or he could later become the, the, you know, the prime minister of Egypt. No matter what he's doing, whether it's this incredibly prestigious job where he's going to save hundreds of thousands of people in the ancient Near East of famine over the course of a seven-year famine, or he's literally working in the lowest of the low in a, in a dungeon, essentially in a jail, who's he working for? He's working for the same Lord, and he works with the same attitude. And so nothing changes. The circumstances don't change Joseph. You know, I think there can be a temptation where when I have a job that's down here in the corner, it's not what I really want to be doing. I do a lazy job. I'm sloppy. I cut corners. 
I don't really want to be as thorough or have as much integrity. But when there's more of a, a, a job where it's more in the limelight, it's a little bit more prestigious, more what I want to be doing, then I'm more passionate about it. That's, uh, then I'm really working hard. Well, I mean, I wonder if at that point, am I really working for myself rather than actually working for the God who placed me where I am? And so, wherever Joseph is over these years, he is working with the same kind of consistency, and the people around him see it, and they, they, they see that there's a trustworthiness to the way that he is acting. Yeah, and I think it's important, too, to remember Joseph didn't have any idea of how this was going to shake out. He right. just knew he was in Potiphar's house, and then he was, and he, he, you know, it didn't get better after Potiphar's house. It actually got worse. He was thrown in prison. So, it's like he's descending even further um, as he's being faithful to God. Um, and so... Again, I know we're talking about work, but there's a principle there. Sometimes it's, it's not because we're not being faithful that we go through the difficult times. It's because we are being faithful. Um, Joseph was seeking to serve the Lord and honor Him, and because he took a stand for what was right, he suffered. Um, and so, I mean, I think that has a lot of application for the day we're living in, especially now. Um, you know, Joseph's, I mean, Potiphar's wife obviously was mad that Joseph wouldn't give in, and so she took the opportunity to get Joseph in trouble. Um, and the, the world we live in today is going to be pressuring us, some of you already know this, pressuring us to compromise on the truth, um, and they're going to keep pressuring and keep pressuring, and when we don't, they get mad. And it's, and, you know, if we suffer in our job, we lose our job, things get worse because we're faithful, we just remember Maybe it's because you did what's right, not that you did something wrong. Yeah, uh, that, that's a great point. He had, he had in front of him the pleasure of that sin, mm-hmm. just laid out in front of him day after day. He refused the pleasure of that sin because he knew it was deceptive pleasure, and he, he instead embraced a prison sentence. And so th- that's the kind of integrity. If you turn to chapter 41 of Genesis, uh, this is when he's interpreting Pharaoh's dream. Look at verse 14, Genesis 41, 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, stop. Is, is there a chance here for Joseph to take glory? Say, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a dream interpreter. It's a pretty cool skill that I have right now. He could, he could easily make this about himself and his, his abilities. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So, so th- there it is. Again, his God-centeredness is shining even when he's standing before the most powerful man in the world at that time. And when, when, the, when that man is praising him, saying, I've heard you can do this amazing thing, he says, no, actually, I cannot do it. The God who is with me can give me the interpretation of the dream. So he, he's God-centered even in that moment when there may have been large pressure to not say that, but instead to try to take the glory for himself. So e- even there, thinking about honoring God with our work. So just to review real quick, from, from last time around, we talked about how work existed before the fall. Remember, the Bible begins with God working. Six days, He worked, He created the world, on the seventh day, He rested. And so God is the one working in the beginning. And we are made in His image, which means we are like God, made to work. We don't work exactly like God. He creates from nothing. We have to create from something. But we are still mirroring something of God's creativity when we, when we do something. When, when you embrace a project or a job or a task, and you take chaos and you turn it into order, you, you, you move towards something that is falling apart and you make it better. If you, if you pour yourself into a situation and you improve relationships, you improve a family dynamic, you improve someone's home, you improve this or that or the other, you help someone with their education, in that you are 
if you're doing it with the right attitude, honoring and glorifying God with that, that ability that He's instilled within us, and it, like you said, it's not a bad thing. Work mm. has been cursed. It has been, it has been marred by the fall, but it is still something that is a wonderful and glorious and good thing. Well, I think, too, there's, there's different ways we go at this because sometimes we might feel like what we do isn't really creating something, but it, it's, all, it's all intended to go together. I mean, you think, like, especially in light of the fall, you know, depending on your job, some, like, you're literally going to be creating or building. Others, you might be maintaining something that's been built. Uh, you might be protecting uh, the people and what they've built, or you might be, you know, repairing it. And, you know, that, that can be in terms of, like, stuff that machinery that we build, cars, or even people, you think people in the medical field, they are doing what? They're, they're using their work to repair and restore something that's been messed up. And so I think we need to keep a broad definition of, of what work is because there's so many different fields, so many different um, vocations and giftings and specific um, skill sets that so many different people can have. And it's all contributing to what God commanded us to do just in slightly different ways. And therefore, you know, whether, whatever it is, it's still honoring to the Lord um, and something we should not shy away from. Yeah, just jumping off that with, with just take education. I know there's a number of teachers in the room. Uh, how does that work if done with the right attitude? How does it honor the Lord? Well, whether you're teaching third graders or you're teaching 12th graders or college students or whatever it may be, you're, you're taking someone who has not yet learned a particular uh, subject, whatever it is you're teaching. They have not learned that yet. So their brain is undeveloped in that way. They have not gotten that information. They haven't been trained in that way. And so your job is to take someone who's untrained in some, some, mm. some set of knowledge and skill and to lead them by the hand through uh, the course and to develop them so that they grow stronger in their wisdom, hopefully. They grow stronger in their discernment. They grow in their knowledge of the world. They, if it's history, they better understand that subject or mathematics or whatever it is. They grow in their knowledge. And at the end of the year, why are you getting a paycheck through the year? It's because the parents in the school system believe that what you are doing for those children really is worth the value that they are paying you, that they really believe that. And sometimes it might feel like you, you, know, you, you wish they, they thought it was worth even more. Sometimes you might feel that way. But they are giving you that money to say that's a confirmation of the value of what you are doing for the students that you are teaching. And just to give a powerful, brief illustration uh, from uh, one author, Nate uh, N.D. Wilson, he, he talks about his grandfather a long time ago. L listen to this. This story is kind of moving. From, from many decades ago. L listen to this. He says, search for moments in your story where you can be grateful. In mine, two strangers changed everything. And then he says, Miss Smith, first name unknown, Miss Smith. My grandfather, uh, James Wilson, had scarlet fever when he was little. Okay? My grandfather had scarlet fever when he was little. The, the family was quarantined, but when he was well again, he wasn't all the way well. He didn't speak until late and remembers weeping when his older brother shoved him into a kindergarten classroom and shut the door behind him. He failed frequently, and before long, he was four years behind an older brother who was only two years older. James was 10 and fast becoming the, the ox with the size to match his academic failure. Okay, he's 10 years old. He can barely read and do anything. Miss Smith was 18. I wish I had a picture. She was a girl without a college education sent into a one-room schoolhouse out in the cornfields of Nebraska, five miles from the nearest town. And when she looked at James, she saw anger and embarrassment and an easy path before the boy's feet. As the soul of that little farm school, she met with James, heard his frustration, and read him well. She figured out where he was at. How could he ever catch up? He was angry, embarrassed, and hopeless. 
She told him that there was nothing standing between him and the grades ahead. She promised him that she would teach him as fast as he could learn, and she was as good as her word. She worked with him until he was more than on pace, and when the family moved into South Omaha, it is thanks to Miss Smith that James was not hobbled, thanks to Miss Smith that he would be able to juggle his way through high school while running that farm and working nights at the stockyard. I owe Miss Smith my life as the grandson of this man. I owe Miss Smith my life. To whom do you owe yours? Thanks to her, James was academically aggressive, studying and testing into his Navy enlistment uh, to land a higher rank, testing into a Naval Academy prep school from the fleet, and numbering among the fraction of students appointed to the academy from that school. As an officer, he sailed for Japan and met my grandmother. Then this is the part that's just so good. A defeated 10-year-old boy stood at a narrative crossroads in his life in a cornfield schoolhouse in Nebraska. An 18-year-old girl found him there. She picked him up. She pushed him. I exist. I don't even know her first name. That's a picture there. Do I know if she was a Christian? I don't even know if she was a Christian. I'm not saying that. This is why our motives matter. But do you see the impact that your work can have? I mean, how would that even seem like a big deal? You're an 18-year-old girl in the middle of Nebraska, in the middle of nowhere. you got this 10-year-old boy in front of you who cannot read or write. Doesn't look like a very ambitious situation to be in. And what happens? She pours her soul into him. She pours, she labors with this kid and trains him, and he goes on to become a Christian in the Navy. He ends up marrying a woman who's a believer. They end up having a bunch of Christian children and, 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 and a legacy that's developed from there. How did it all, where was the turning point? The crossroads happened when he was a 10-year-old in a Nebraska schoolhouse, and Miss Smith chose to take up him and really pour herself in. Could she have been lazy and not really tried that hard? I mean, he had all the excuses to not work that hard, but yet she said, no, I'm, I'm going to pour into him. And the impact is, is something that's being felt today, right now. So never, and this is my fear, we underestimate what we're doing in this world. It, it so often feels small. What you're doing with your life so often feels minuscule. You, you look back on five years, 10 years, 50 years, whatever it is, you look back and you go, what have I really done? I mean, what difference has my life really made? It feels so inconsequential. And yet in God's timetable and in God's scale, things are very different than they look to us right now. And we have to remember, every act done to the glory of God in love of neighbor is something that will never lose its reward, and it is, it is kept in the annals of heaven. Those things are never forgotten by our God in heaven. They have eternal value and significance. And I think if we saw the way the little pebble of our life hits the water, if we could see the ripple effect that our life would end up having over the course of decades and generations, I think we would be stunned by the way God uses seemingly small things in our lives to greatly impact the people that we're around for great good and for His glory. Yeah, amen. Um, Yeah, and our our work, um, you know, whether it's something that that we feel like is noticed by others or not, um, it's not irrelevant to God. It's not irrelevant to Him. He sees what we're doing, um, and if we're doing it for Him, um, then He is pleased with that. Um, you know, whether you're you're out front, like in a very public position, or more kind of in the background in a less public position. Um, in the Lord's eyes, what He's looking at is not what your job title is, but are you doing it unto Him? Like, I think that, that's the, the biggest thing. You know, Paul told the servants, I think it was in Colossians, is like, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So whatever it is you, you have to do, that is God's assignment, God's gift to you for that time. Do it unto Him. Um, especially if, you know, like Joseph, you find yourself in places where, say, this isn't exactly where I want to be. Um, 
you know, but that's where God has you. Um, I mean, I, we went through a, a long season before the Lord, you know, led us here. And then the opportunity I have to teach at Prince Avenue, just wondering, you know, why has not, why has God not opened up, you know, so many doors? I mean, we not, you know, to just use the analogy, we knocked on a lot of doors and the Lord shut it. And the, the point we came to, and it was one we had to fight for, was, all right, God, if, if you're shutting all these other doors that are good doors that we'd love to walk through, then we're just going to try to be as faithful as we can be, do the best we can with where we are, with what you've given us, and, and fight to be content there. Because if God hasn't opened the doors, God doesn't want us to go there. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to say that, but where we are is where God has planned for us to be for this time. Um, and so the, the, the temptation we have to fight is being constantly discontent because it's not where we would prefer. Um, and, and, if you're not, and if you're in a place where you, you are enjoying it, you know, praise the Lord. But if you're not, you know, you're not missing out like somehow you're in, you know, second best plan of God for you. Um, you know, you don't have to wonder, maybe did I do something wrong? No, maybe it's just this is where God has you right now. Um, and this actually ties into one of the points uh, that work is a big part of our sanctification. Mm -hmm. Whether it's in a job that we love um, I would say even more if we're in a place where it's not a job we prefer as much, mm -hmm. God is going to use our, our, our situation and our, our context to conform us to Christ. Um, you know, and if, if you have relationships, if you have kids, if you, you know, have close friends, you're married, you understand that God will use where we are to reveal our own sin, our own idols, the things we're trusting in that aren't Him the things we're leaning on that aren't Him, the things we're finding our joy in that aren't Him, that have subtly replaced God in our lives. Um, and when, you, when He keeps not giving us what we think we should have, and you know, in and of itself it's not bad and we want it, but we can't have it, God's going to show us, is He our joy or are these things our joy? Um, and so God's going to use our circumstances wherever they are, whatever they are, um, especially with our job, to conform us to Christ. And one of the ways that happens is He shows us stuff about ourselves that we might not want to see about ourselves sometimes. Um, but that's always a good thing. You think of uh, you know, the metaphor that Jesus uses of pruning the vine. Um, when you prune a vine, it looks like, oh my goodness, you murdered this thing, like you butchered it, like it's nothing there. But what's the purpose of pruning? It's because the vine dresser knows this has a lot of potential, and so I'm going to get it ready to produce the fruit I want it to produce. And so pruning is not pleasant, but it's always profitable long term. It, it, that's so good. If trials produce, you know, uh, let me get the verse right. Uh, trials produce a character. Character produces uh, uh, endurance. Endurance produces hope. The, the idea of it tra changing our character, transforming our life through trials. Well, the, the trials are going to come in a lot of ways. But work is a major area where trials are going to come into our lives. We're going to be disappointed with our work. How many times in our life will you face disappointment through your job? Whether it's through a relationship, what your boss chooses to do, whatever, a hundred different ways. Every week, probably, you have disappointment at work. And what is God doing? He hasn't lost track of you. He is shaping your character. He's shaping, my, he's refining my character like through a fire, a purging fire where he's burning out the imperfection. And listen, if work was always amazing 
and circumstantially exactly what we dreamed every day and every week, we would become a very immature person spiritually. We, we would not be ready for, for what God uh, w- would want us to, to be like. And so t- turn with me to Titus real quick, Titus chapter 2. Th- there's this glorious text in Titus 2 about the gospel, and I want to put it in context. So Titus chapter 2, skip down to verse 11. It comes right before Philemon and Hebrews Titus chapter 2, and you may remember this uh, wonderful gospel section in verse 11. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, y'all hear, that's a gospel-rich section. God's grace has come to save us, transform us. It's this wonderful text. But do you know what comes just before that part? Let's read. It's a long part, but it's worth reading. Let's start in verse 1. Titus 2.1. And it applies to everybody, older men, younger women, older women, everybody. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, so that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants, talk about a job you don't want, verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything they may adorn or beautify the doctrine of God our Savior, and then the gospel text comes. Now, do you see the context? He's talking about women caring for, he's talking about mothers caring for their children at home. And he puts that right in the context of the gospel. He takes a servant serving his master, think employer, uh, employee and employer today, working hard at your job. And then right in the middle of that, what does he have? This is how you beautify or adorn the gospel, the doctrine of our Savior. How? Because when we work like Joseph did in the story in Genesis, we lend credibility to the beauty of the gospel that we proclaim. We, our lives are a demonstration, of, a reflection of the kind of person Christ is. And so whether it's a mother working with her children at home in this text, or an older woman teaching a younger woman, uh, whether it's young men or older men, w- servants and masters, whatever it is, it's saying how we conduct ourselves is going to either make the gospel more glorious or it's going to try to subtract from, as if we could, from the, the gospel message itself. And then he leads right into the gospel. So don't ever think that the gospel is detached from all these everyday things that we're talking about because in context, they go, they go side by side. Well, the gospel is actually kind of the foundation and the fuel for everything he's saying because this is where, um, you know, you always, when you're reading Scripture, you want to pay attention to verbs, you want to pay attention to prepositions, um, stuff like that. Look at verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. When you say that word for, it's introducing the ground underneath which what he just said is, is supporting, okay? So it's like what he's saying in verses 11 through 14 is kind of like the foundation for what he said in 1 through 10. And so 
the foundation is what? It's about God's grace. It's about, um, <coughs> excuse me, it's about salvation. It's about renouncing ungodliness, worldly passions, living a certain way, waiting for Jesus to come back and waiting as a people zealous for good works. And so, well, why would Paul talk about mothers and, you know, or young men and old men and young women and old women and servants? Well, because he's talking about how his people, uh, where the, they need to be zealous in. So it's like, um, you know, be zealous, older men, in, you know, your, your conduct, older women, in your behavior and in your teaching of the younger women. Be zealous, uh, young men, for, um, you know, to be self-controlled and to be a model of good works. And bond servants, be zealous to do good in your place. Why? Because that's what the gospel produces is a zealous, uh, a zealous heart to do what's good in the eyes of God. And, um, and he starts with the examples, but then goes to, you know, what fuels that. But we have to remember verses 11 through 14 in the gospel and all that God has done, wherever God has us, we should pray, Lord, help me be zealous to do good works in this position because you've saved me, you've called me, and all, that, all that's there. That's good. T- turn to the left a little bit. First Thessalonians, a few books to your left. Just a, I want just a sampling of verses. The Thessalonian letters have a lot to say about <laughs> our regular jobs, and Paul mentions it repeatedly throughout these two letters. There was a, there was a, there were some lazy people in this in the Thessalonian churches for whatever reason that we could get into, but Paul is rebuking that. So look at look at First Thessalonians chapter two. Let's start here. First Thessalonians chapter two. Look at verse nine. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So you see here, Paul is, yes, he is proclaiming the gospel. He's he's there as a missionary, but he says, I don't want to be taking all your resources and using your money and food. So I worked, toiled night and day so that I wouldn't be a burden to you. I, I was paying my own bills. I was paying for my own food while I was in Thessalonica and preaching the gospel to you. Look at chapter four of the same book. Look at verse 9. Greg, can you read 9 through 12? It says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So a comment on this verse, that's amazing, isn't it? That that you might walk properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. So there's a kind of, I want to, the word independence is a little tricky here. There's a kind of holy independence here, not from God, but, but from using other people. In other words, God has made us to be productive. And when we do a good job and we make a paycheck and we're able to support ourselves with the money that we made, there, there is something of the glory of God in that. In fact, it's a command right here in this text. So the fact that we are wired for that kind of stuff. We're not wired ultimately to live off of the, uh, off of the help of other people. I understand that there are people in difficult circumstances that might need help getting back on their feet uh, for a temporary period of time. You try to help someone get back on their feet. But we are not made to live in that state permanently. 
And when we try, it is a rot to our soul. When we are never actually producing or earning an income ourselves, never able to actually get to that, it is like a rottenness to our own soul. And this is just a sad part of the world that we live in with death being a reality. But you will sometimes hear story of people who are, who are in retirement homes who are really at a point where they're unable to do much of anything physically. And one of the things that you'll hear is one of the most depressing aspects you'll hear from some of these individuals who maybe are, are, are older in life. They will say, the thing I miss most is just being able to do something productive with my life. I, I'm just, right now I'm at a point where I can do very minimal things physically to fix something or to work on something. There's very little I can do right now. And it just, it just feels, it, there's an emptiness there, which is a sadness to that, to that aspect. But God has wired us uh, for work and productivity, and it, His glory is wrapped up in those, in those uh, activities. Um. I don't want to chase this rabbit too far, yeah. but I think this principle here, you know, be dependent on no one. Um, if that's God's desire for us, then any system, government system, economic system, whatever, that would encourage people to not be this, to do what God says, is sinful. Um, when we teach people to be de- dependent in the sense that they don't work, but somebody else will provide for me and I'm just going to stay at home, this, that, and the other, when they are capable of working, that's evil. Like, that's just, that's evil. Um, and it encourages that rot that you're talking about. And it's, it's not, I mean, sometimes physically when we don't do anything, our bodies waste away, but it encourages a mindset and an attitude that is not just bad for the individual, but it's bad for everyone else around us. God intends that when we work, whatever it is, that it does produce something that's going to benefit others in some way. Again, whether really directly, like if you're making something or like, you know, people who are out front in public, like, you know, teaching, you know, it's kind of out front and up there and other things. But like if you're building something in a shop and not a lot of people know, but guess what? You're still doing something that's going to benefit others. Um, and any view, the, any, any worldview that comes in and says, you know, don't work. Somebody else will take care of that for you. You just, you know, works hard. We don't want you to feel stressed. That's just evil. I mean, that is just plumb evil. Um, and I, I don't know if it's in, yeah, it's in Second Thessalonians. Again, this is in the context first of the church, okay? Um, you know, because people know the church is gracious. Christians love to be generous, to help the poor, help those who don't have needs. And you basically, the church has to watch out for moochers. I mean, we, we know what a mooch is. Somebody is like a parasite. I'm just going to, I'm not going to contribute. I'm just going to take, 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 and I'm never going to contribute, and I'm going to get as much as I can. What does Paul say at the end of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? This is verse 10. He said this, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living, literally to earn their own bread. And again, there are exceptions to this. Like Good Samaritan exception. Some, someone is physically in a place right, where they can't yes. do that. You, you step in, you love them, you pay for everything they need to get them back going again. Yes. That's not what we're, we're condemning, obviously. We're talking about someone who has the ability to do the work, yes. but is choosing not to in that exactly. case. Exactly. And the Bible spares um, no words on that type of attitude. We are to seek to be hard workers in something, um, contribute to 
uh, you know, was it in another place, was it um, in Ephesians, he talks about, the, you know, um, i, I got to read this. i, I got to find it real quick. It's in Ephesians 5, I believe. Um, says, yeah, this is verse uh, Ephesians 4, uh, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Mm-hmm. So he has something to share. We want to work so that we not just can provide for ourselves, but also have something to give to someone else who might have need. And if we're constantly in a mindset of, well, I'm, I'm not going to work, I'm just going to live off the labor of others, we're hindering our own ability and we're going to miss out on the joy of serving others. I mean, we know this. I mean, this church is like a good example. When there's a need, oh my goodness, like if just uh, the, the food train, the meal train, like it pops up. You think, okay, I've got, I've got a day or two, you know, let me see what I could work together. An hour later, it's filled up. But there's a joy in that. There's a joy in being able to give um, because it's stuff you've earned, you've, you've gained. And it's like, all right, Lord, here, you know, someone else here, help me, Lord, give me the opportunity to give and be generous to others. There's, there's a blessing that comes from being productive that enables us to serve others better. If we're constantly just dependent on other people, we are hindering our ability to be good servants in the church and in the world. Now, that's helpful. So, we're, we're coming close to the end here. A couple last points that I want to mention, and these deserve a lot more time than I'm going to be able to give it right now. But uh, one thing is, is working so you can support the Great Commission. And that, that's going to be both locally and internationally. But one of the things we do is when we make money, and if by God's grace we have some extra money that we're able to give, to be able to give generously to missionaries that we know and trust, to be able to give to uh, local churches that we know and trust, people who are ministering God's Word across the world, it is a glorious thing to be able to take some of the money that I have earned or you have earned and to give it to something that really matters. You know, we'll get to this in the Sermon on the Mount soon, but uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you invest your treasure in something like you put a lot of money into something, you will find that your heart starts caring more and more about that thing, right? You put money into, you put money into the stock market, guess what? You start checking the stocks, right? Because suddenly where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Wherever you put your money, your heart will follow your money because you care about where your money goes. And if you put your money into a particular missionary in Turkey and you, you pour into that missionary and you, you put hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars over a course of time into this family over, over the long haul, guess what? When their, when their monthly email comes, you're going to be reading it much more carefully because you know you have a part in their ministry over there. And what, what, if someone was converted, if a Muslim was converted to Christianity through this missionary couple that you supported, suddenly you have a little tiny share in what was happening. You have a little tiny part in that. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You'll, you'll be able to rejoice with them in a unique way because you were able to contribute to the glory of God and the Great Commission. And uh, that, that's a wonderful thing to think about. And... Um, the, the, just, just kind of coming to a close here uh, for the sake of time, uh, I, I know I mentioned this last time, but th- this gospel verse, he who was rich for our sake became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. The, the, the gospel is Jesus coming and generously serving us at great cost to himself, him doing the really hard work, the work of salvation and giving it to us for free so the transformation of our life could begin to reflect that in the way that we treat other people. And remember, Jesus himself is the one who worked the blue-collar job for the first 30 years of his life. There, there was no greater way he could dignify uh, the work that we share than by doing it himself for the majority of his life on earth. Closing thoughts, Greg? Um, I'm going to read First uh, Timothy 6, 17 through 19, because it, it deals with treasure and what we find our, our treasure in. He says, As for the rich in this present age... 
charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. When we are generous with, as we're able with what God has given us, we free ourselves from being bound to money, being bound to stuff, um, and we're, we position ourselves to better stay rooted in Christ and the hope of the gospel and eternal life and being with Him. Um, when we set our hope on, like you said, on our riches, we, we don't set our hope on God. But when we set our hope on the Lord and we realize everything that we have comes from Him to begin with, then we can be generous. We can be free with it. And when we're free with what God has given us, it actually frees us from being chained to the very things that we're given, giving away. That's good. All right, let me pray for us. Then we'll have our time of discussion around the tables. Heavenly Father, thank You for the fact that You made us to work with whatever uh, job You have in front of us. Uh, God, I'm sure that there are frustrations in this room over the job that we currently have. I, I just have no doubt that there are numerous people in this room probably who just may be frustrated with, with the current job, wish they had a different job, and, and maybe one day You will provide a different uh, job, a more enjoyable job. But God, I, I pray for us in the here and now as tomorrow morning we get up and we have things that we must do, some of them more pleasant and some of them less pleasant. God, I pray that you would give us a real joy in you, a real joy in the gospel, that we would see that you meant this for good. That Joseph could say, I, I am doing what I'm doing because God put me here. And, and we are doing what we're doing because you have put us where we are. And whether the job seems glorious or more common, I do pray that you would give us the desire to do it in a way that would be honoring to you and that it would be seen as an act of love to those we are serving with our work. And I do pray, God, for opportunities to speak a word about the gospel with the people we're around. I pray our character would be consistent with the gospel we proclaim. And when it, when it is not, which so often we do fail, I pray that we would confess that, if necessary, out loud to someone that we've sinned against and that we would repent of that and get back on our feet and continue to move forward in, in, the, in, the, in the fight of, of faith. And so I pray now as we discuss this around the tables that it would be beneficial, and I pray this in Jesus' name.